0: My name is John Mark Redwine and I'm the lead pastor. And what a gift to be with you here today. Welcome, welcome. Hey, next weekend, like Mikey was saying, that's Mother's Day. So uh, hopefully that's a reminder for some of you guys. Buy a car, get the flowers, get a gift if you haven't yet. This is your last chance. Don't say you'll do it Friday. You're not going to do it Friday. Go get it done this afternoon and it'll be ready, okay? Hey, next Sunday, I'm so excited about what we have planned for you uh, during service. We have child dedication and We've got gifts for all the ladies and all the exciting Mother's Day things. But I'm really excited about the teaching next week because it's not me. Isn't that a gift? That's my gift to you is that you don't have to listen to me talk about being a mom again because I got no idea what I'm talking about. Instead, we're going to have a panel next week. We're going to have five different ladies coming from different perspectives of motherhood, different areas, different perspectives, and each of them is going to bring a seven-minute sermon to you, kind of down the line as it goes. It's a ton of fun. It's going to be great. If you're ADHD like me, it's a great week. You're like, yes, 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 yes. If you can't connect with one, hang on for five minutes, and you'll connect with the next one, and so uh, it's going to be a really great Sunday. I'm really excited about it. We've got an incredible panel of women teaching next week, and so make sure you're here for that. Bring somebody. I really think it's going to be a powerful Sunday. Well, today we're wrapping up this series called Here For You. Here For You. We've all seen enough headlines in the recent years uh, to ask the question, quietly at least, who is the church here for? What's the role of the church what, what, what is the church supposed to be doing? And I think that there's two answers to who we're here for. The first answer is that the church is here to worship God, bring glory to Him and honor to Him and to build His kingdom and nobody else's, no kingdom of man, but instead a kingdom of God here on earth. And one of the ways that the church does that is by serving people. It's by being here for you. See, at the church, we believe you have a seat at the table, no matter who you are. When you feel alone, we believe that the church should be here for you. You can make friends like family here in this place. And today, I want to talk about one more way that the church is here for you. And it's a crucial one. It's important. I think it's one of the things our society needs the most right now. The church is here for you when you don't deserve it. The church is here for you in the days you deserve it the least. Let's talk about what happens today when we do the wrong thing. What happens when we screw up? When we're living in a way that hurts ourselves and hurts others? When we make bad decisions like a waterfall, one after the other? We're going to talk about a time in King David's life when that was just what he did. We've been studying David this series. We've been looking at his life and learning about the church really by studying him. David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible has a lot to say about him. And David was 14 generations ahead in the line of Jesus. It was through David's family that God brought the Messiah here to earth. And so David's story is important. It matters. And uh, we've been looking through that over these last couple weeks, and today I want to look at uh, the worst part of David's story. First Samuel chapter 13 says that David is a man after God's own heart. He was anointed by God to lead the people of God. He was humble and kind and generous and compassionate. All of these things that are in the heart of God were also in the heart of David. But David was completely human, which meant that he was far from perfect. He had been successful and he had been a good king for a long time, but as time went on and the same patterns just kept repeating, David became complacent as a king and as a man. Second Samuel chapter 11 is where we start the story today. It opens like this, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. David had seen so many victories in his life that he began to take it for granted. It was the time when a king went off to war. It's interesting that the writer puts that in there because he wants us to know that it's very unusual for a king to be home at spring during a war. It's an unusual thing that David stayed back. Typically, he would lead the battle. David was known for being a master tact- tactician and a, a great military leader. It was one of the things he was famous for before he was king was being a great general. He often led the battles, led the war that was happening. But in this case, he stayed home, idle, complacent, and vulnerable. And that's when David made the worst decision of his life. David goes up on the roof one night at the exact time that women would go on the roof to bathe. Coincidentally, the palace was the tallest residence in Jerusalem. It was the ancient equivalent of What David was doing was the ancient equivalent of opening up the private browser on your phone. He knew that he was getting into trouble. While he was up there, he saw a woman bathing and he decided he had to have her. He's the king, so he can get what he wants. So he orders a servant to go to the house next door and to get that woman and bring her to his chambers. And he brought her over and he did adult stuff with her and she got pregnant. And that led to a bigger problem. Because the bigger problem was that this woman, her name was Bathsheba, was married. And not only was she married, she was married to one of David's friends and most loyal military leaders. So David tries to fix it by giving her husband, Uriah was his name, a three day pass to come home from war and come home and take a little rest time, go see your wife, you know, just see what happens. And he thinks this will fix the issue. They'll do what married people do and this will fix the problem, I won't have to deal with it, except that Uriah was a very good man and a good soldier. He wasn't gonna go home and sleep in his own bed while all of his his, uh, compatriots, whatever, his fellow soldiers were off at war sleeping on the battlefield, no. Uriah came and he slept outside the gates. He slept on the ground outside the gates to his house. He would not even go inside and see his wife. And so this really messed up David's plan. David is nervous. He's worried. He's in lies after lies after lies. He's in a mess that his sin created and he's getting hot and sweaty trying to figure out what to do. Have you ever hidden something, a sin, a mistake, lied about it? deceived others. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It just kept rolling on and on and on. And you were at a point where you were willing to do anything to keep it from being discovered. So David made a terrible, terrible decision. He had to fix this. So he sent Uriah back to war with orders. And those orders said to his commander, the guy who was in charge of the battle, to send Uriah to the front lines. And when they would advance in the battle, this is ancient warfare, men with swords and shields clashing on a battlefield and just chopping at each other until it was the last man standing or a retreat was sounded. He put Uriah on the front line, and the orders were that once they charged, everyone else was meant to draw back and leave Uriah surrounded by enemies. David sentenced him to death, death by battle. And that's exactly what happened. The the men followed their king's orders exactly. Uriah was slain on the field of battle, in essence, murdered by David, and David married Bathsheba. I got to tell you, I love that this story is in the Bible because it's not a very flattering story about somebody described as a man after God's own heart. David wrote most of the Psalms. Da- David is a prominent figure in the Bible. I mean, I grew up in Sunday school learning about David and Goliath and the slingshot, and, and th- that story has permeated our culture. We we sing his praises. David is a hero by standards, not just biblical, but anywhere. And yet, we have this story in the Bible of David doing a lot of really bad things. Most religious books go to great lengths to make their heroes look holy, look like heroes, look perfect. But the Bible isn't like that. It's not just some religious book. It's a real story of God's relationship with humanity. And humanity is a messy bunch. And the Bible illustrates that from beginning to end. It shows over and over and over again Our messiness. We make mistakes. We make big mistakes. We hurt people. We hurt people badly. We hide things. We lie. We steal. We cheat. And through it all, God loves us anyways. He still offers mercy, grace, compassion, and sacrifice on our behalf. I love that this story exists in the narrative of David's life in the Bible because it's a reminder that God will use you. Whether or not you always meet his expectations of you. David messed up big. And we mess up too. And there's two big problems that we tend to have when we mess up. Two big problems. I'm going to wipe my nose, you guys. I had the flu this week. And I wouldn't wipe my nose in front of you and talk about it. But I think it's worse to have shiny nose. Two big problems that we have... I guess because I had the flu this week, you could say I'm kind of like Michael Jordan right now, playing the, (laughs) in many ways. If you don't know, Michael Jordan played, it was like a championship game with a flu before. And so, I don't have a fever anymore if you're worried. I haven't tried not to touch anybody. I took some medicine that cured the flu. We're not gonna talk about this anymore. Mike, (laughs) Mikey's like, move on John Mark. Um, we have two issues when we make mistakes like this uh, that, that I think are one of the things that, that turn up when we make these big problems for ourselves. First one is this. We tend to want to be our own judge. We tend to want to be our own judge. We push away anyone who calls us on our mess. We push away anybody who would reveal our sin, our mistakes to us, things that we already know we're doing wrong, the moment somebody else brings it up, our reaction is to cut that person out of our lives. We withdraw from the people who actually know us. We build up resentment in our hearts for anyone who has authority over us because how dare they judge us? Nobody can judge me but me, right? Is that a good way to live? Do we think that we can be a good judge for ourselves? Or we say, nobody can judge me but God. Only God is my judge. But when God judges us, we reject it as well. If someone hurts us, we don't want them to be the judge of their actions. No way. We want to be the judge. We want justice. But it's different when it's us. We want to be our own judge. But there's a big problem with that because We can't see what we can't see. How can you be your own judge when you wouldn't even know what your own face looked like if there wasn't something to reflect it? You need somebody else to show you your actions and their consequences sometimes because you cannot see them for yourself. You got blind spots everywhere. We all do. You need a community. People in your life or a leader or an authority in your life that shows you what your blind spots are and points them out at the right times. So David does this terrible, terrible thing. In the very next chapter, look, look at what happens. This is chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb that he, brought, that he bought. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, and it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. That's for all the, all the folks that love their dogs like children. You get it. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. That was a rough moment for David. (laughs) We can't see what we can't see. David is listening to this story about a rich man stealing the one thing that the poor man had and he's getting all hot and bothered. He's thinking, "That poor little lamb didn't deserve to die. That man loved that lamb. How could he have taken it? We got to kill the guy that did this." And Nathan says, "It's you. You're the guy in the story." See, we're David in this story at some point in our lives without fail we make mistakes. We hurt people. We make decisions that affect others, that hurt others. We do things that we try to hide, that we try to cover up, that we try to move on from that are wrong. When you do that, you need to make sure that there is someone in your life who will show you your own reflection. That's a major function of the church, accountability to be someone who is here for you even when you don't deserve to have someone here for you, someone to help you take next steps forward and show you that you can have a future if you make the right decisions. The church can give us that kind of accountability, and we need accountability. We need it because there is a difference between what we want to hear and what we need to hear. There's a difference between what we want to hear and what we need to hear. Naturally, we tend to surround ourselves with people who just agree with us, who will tell us what we want to hear. I think this is one of our current generation's biggest mistakes right now, is that we're pushing away anyone who would challenge us, who would make us sharper, who would hold us accountable, who would disagree with us, And we bring in people who think like us, and affirm us, and agree with all we say and do. Uh, I I am guilty of enjoying some TikToks. You guys like the TikTok? I do, and I'm ashamed of it, honestly. I'm not a big social media guy. I was never really into Instagram. I don't have, I've never made a TikTok, but it's, if you don't know what it is, it's a social media platform that has like these 20-second videos and uh, it's everything across the board. Anything, there's everything on there. But it has an algorithm. And uh, I don't know much about algorithms before uh, I started learning about social media. I knew that occasionally, like in the movie, A Beautiful Mind, I think he talks about algorithms. And I, I don't know, it's, it's a smart people thing. But what an algorithm does is it watches the videos that you enjoy. So for me, it's people getting hurt. I don't know why. I saw one the other day of a guy that, that went to do a flip on a Razor scooter, and he went up this ramp, and he did like halfway through the flip, and then belly flopped it, and I watched it through like four times. I'm ashamed to say it here, but the next day, the algorithm showed me like 50 videos just like it, and I was here for it. And I was like, yes! Let's go. I also see a lot of comedians, uh, people that do skits where they're every character. For some reason, that's really funny to me. Maybe I'm like secretly a fan of the Eddie Murphy movies from the early 2000s. But the algorithm looks at what you enjoy and it just shows you more more and more and more and more and more of it. And I think what we've done is we've found a similar algorithm for our own lives. We've gotten used to just hearing what we wanna hear and seeing what we wanna see. We've gotten used to having all the things that we don't agree with filter out around us. We surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us. We only watch the news channel that agrees with our specific point of view. We only go to the places that are filled with people who look like us, sound like us, think like us. And as a result, we're less and less challenged by what we do. I think we've hurt ourselves in that way. I think it's important to have those around you who would challenge you, who would would disagree with you, who would not always affirm you but would show you when your thinking is going in the wrong direction. I don't think you can grow in an environment where everything is like you. I think you get stagnant like old pond water and the filth of your environment will just keep growing and growing and growing and you'll never get to see it. Nathan calls David out on his mess. Verse seven, it says, Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house." because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Nathan shows David his sin and its consequences. Now, God is going to give David grace. We'll see that in a couple verses. And David is going to finish well as king. One thing that many kings in the history of Israel don't do when they make mistakes is finish well, but David does it. But that does not mean he doesn't need to accept responsibility for the mistakes that he's made. There's so much power in having somebody in your life who is willing to talk to you like this and expose you in this way. This is how you grow. God's dream for you is that you would get closer and closer to the life that he designed for you. He knows you're not going to get it right all the time. He knows you're going to mess up and make mistakes. He loves you the same no matter what. He loved David in the middle of those mistakes the same way that he did the day he anointed him. He loves you the same no matter what, and he writes a beautiful story for you anyways. God will meet you at all the wrong turns with a new path just as good as the first one. That's who our God is. He is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, and he knows your limitations, He sent Jesus to take away your sin because he knew you could never get it right all on your own. He's a very good God. But he is a just God. It's in his character. And he does require you to accept responsibility for your actions. And he does want you to learn from them and make better decisions going forward. And one of the functions of his church from the very beginning has been to help you do that. Through the relationships that we talked about building last week, the friendships, the accountability relationships you can form here, you can make the kind of friends who would come to you the way that Nathan went to David. And to the other person, the one whose friend needs accountability, do it with grace and kindness. Don't do it alone. Don't enable your friend's bad decisions. Call them out. And be ready to hear it. I believe this takes effort on both sides. And I also believe that the worst thing you can do is respond to somebody challenging you like Nathan did with animosity, anger, and resentment. I've been in a lot of these conversations with close friends, with people in the church. We're just, we are, we're the kind of church that that we're not afraid to get in your business if you invite us in. And I've, I've seen people who are absolutely destroying their lives, have people they care about go into conversations with them. And there's two different ways that you can respond. There's two different ways. And the first way is probably the more common response. Resentment, anger, bitterness. How dare you? You don't care about me. You don't know me. You're just judging me. You don't see me. And then there's the other way. We can respond like David. We can respond in Humility. Verse 13 says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David hears this story, gets mad at the guy in the story, and Nathan says, you are that guy. And then Nathan lays out David's sin. And how does David respond? Does he say, you just don't get me anymore. You were always just on Uriah's side. You were never on my side. You're just trying to control me. I know what this is. You you just want to control me. I need to make my own decisions. That's not what David says. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I messed up. I'm sorry. I want to make it right. We respond in humility. It's really hard to be called out, it's really hard to have somebody tell you that your actions are hurting yourself or they're hurting others. It's hard to have somebody suggest that you need to make some changes in your life. But how else can you grow? How else could you ever get better? I've been on the receiving end of this more times than I'd like to admit. I could be a naturally abrasive person sometimes. You can probably figure that out by the TikTok videos that I like. I don't know why. I pick on people too much. I make jokes that aren't always what you would call appropriate, And I've had a faithful friend pull me aside and say, John Mark, here is how your jokes are hurting people. And here is how you're being perceived. It's not funny. You're a leader and a pastor and you can't pick on the same people you're supposed to be caring for. I remember in that conversation feeling two inches tall. I I tell big stories, and sometimes they're not always great stories. And I had an accountability partner one time say, hey, John Mark, can I tell you something? I said, what? You tend to make a spectacle out of yourself. And I think you need to make sure that other people feel like they're in the room as well sometimes. I, I felt this big. Oh, my gosh. You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. I've been on the receiving end of this. And I wanted to fight back. You don't get it. This is just who I am. I've always been this way. These folks just need to get a better sense of humor if they don't think that stuff's funny. But instead, I've had to consider whether or not they were right. And usually they were. So I've humbled myself, I've apologized, and I've tried to do better. And I've been humbled a lot worse than those examples. And it's happened more than once. And I am so grateful that I have multiple people in my life who are willing to do it and to say it because otherwise how would I grow and how would I ever get any better these people love me and that that is why they are challenging me in these ways and I believe you need that too so when it comes when somebody does challenge you when they call you out do the right thing do the hard thing and respond in humility Take a moment to actually consider if they could be right and you could be wrong and respond in humility. I think a reason that all of this is so hard is because of what comes next, and that's the way forward, the way forward. If you have to be corrected by somebody, it means that there's a lot of work to do. Usually, sorry isn't all that it takes. There's work to be done. And the way forward is never fast, and it's never easy. Amends have to be made. Heart work has to be done. There are natural consequences to face. The next few chapters of 2 Samuel are filled with the consequences of David's choices. And it's really, really messy. But there is grace. Verse 13 says, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Disgrace grace with consequences. That's what follows. David is forgiven and loved and made whole. But he has to live with what he's done. And he has to do the work of making it right. And he does. He does that. The next few chapters of 2 Samuel show him doing everything that he can to make it right. And as time goes on, David goes back to winning battles and defending Judah and being the king he was meant to be. The son of David in Bathsheba that she was pregnant with, that she had, his name was Solomon. Solomon was the next king of Israel. He was said to be one of the greatest kings and wisest men to ever live. God redeemed the story. Solomon would go on to build the kingdom, build the temple of God, the space where God's presence would dwell for years and years and years to come. God redeemed it. He redeemed it. Here are David's last words. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me and his word was on my tongue. And the God of Israel spoke and the rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth his last words were words of praise. Because that's how the story can end. Just because you've done the unthinkable doesn't mean that God can't redeem and restore your life. It doesn't mean that he's done with you. In fact, the entirety of Scripture tells the story that no matter what you've done, God is not done with you yet. That he's not just going to write you off and be finished with you and cast you aside and and give you only punishment and consequences and then forsake you and leave you forever. That's not who God is. That is not who he is. He is a redeeming path forward. That's who God is. But you've got to have somebody to help you get there. David had to have Nathan. He needed someone to show him how bad it had gotten. How many people he was hurting. What it would have felt like to be on the other side. He needed perspective. He needed someone to hold up the mirror and show him his own reflection. So that he could be redeemed. And go forward in the life he was made to live. And I believe we need the same thing. I believe that one of the greatest functions of the church is to meet us in our worst moments. And in our greatest sins and not shy away from the sin that we've committed, not just excuse it and say, it's okay, we'll forget about it, let's move on. That is not what the Bible is about. That's not what grace is all about. I believe that God loves you exactly as you are, despite the mistakes you've made. But I do believe that he doesn't want you to stay right there, he wants you to find freedom to move forward, to make it right. And so there may be natural consequences. We may have to do a lot of hard work, a lot of heart change. We may have to, we may be transformed in a process that takes years to move ahead. We may have a lot of people that we've hurt that we've got to do everything that we can to help them heal. It may be really difficult days ahead for us. But I do believe that God has a plan for you in it, dreams for you on the other side of it that he's got glory waiting for you around the corner. And the function of the church is to walk through you in every step of the way, is to be there with you to hold you accountable when you don't want anyone to hold you accountable and to be there with you when you start to accept it and it feels like your whole world is shattered and falling apart and how could everyone, anyone ever love you again? It is our function to stand beside you and say, we love you and we're here with you. And when you start to make amends and when you start to make it right, it is our job to walk beside you and help you have strength, to hold you up when you don't feel like you can hold yourself up. And when you've gotta make hard decisions to get your life in order, it is our role to help support you along the way, to show you the path and help you walk it. That's what the church does. It can be scary and it can be hard, but I think it's one of the greatest things you could ever invite into your life. Don't go on it all by yourself, only surrounded by people that tell you what you want to hear. Get on this journey with people who actually care about you and love you enough to show you when you've made a mistake. If you're in here today and you've been on your own all along, you've, you've never had anyone call you out, you've never had anyone hold you accountable, you didn't really even understand What you were doing was wrong, except somewhere in your heart you felt broken. You felt like something was missing. You felt like there had to be a better way. There had to be a better way to live. If that's you, I want you to know that the first step is just entering into a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to do any preparation. You don't have to make any amends. You don't have to do anything to walk into relationship with him today. He wants you exactly as you are. You can know Him exactly as you are today. And if you're ready to do that, it's as simple as the commitment through prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just pray this prayer with me Heavenly Father, all that I am, I give to you. Forgive me for my sin, forgive me for my mistakes. I accept accountability. And I ask your forgiveness today. I believe in you and I want to follow you. So all that I am is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.